Good day, everybody, and welcome to podcast number three of The Gadfly. Today I want to talk about the topic of conservatism, specifically what is conservatism? What is the background to what we have come to know as conservatism today? Well, to begin with, the word conservative comes from the Latin noun conservator, meaning a keeper or a preserver, and also from the noun conservare, which means to protect or to guard. The conservative philosophy of life I'm going to describe in this brief podcast is derived from my book, The Great Divide, which is dedicated to clearly outlining the differences between liberals and conservatives in a great many areas. So, of course, I'm going to encourage everyone to pick up that book and study all this a little more deeply. At any rate, conservatism, as I say, is really and truly a philosophy of life rather than a political philosophy. In other words, I'm not talking here about party politics. I'm talking about the philosophy which we have come to know as conservatism. And this distinction is very important because when properly understood, conservatism presents a stiff challenge to the worldview of the modern liberal. It is a recipe with specific tried and true ingredients for the good life, but it is not a speculative theory, for that would defeat conservatism itself, which has always resisted abstract cookbook formulas, ideologies, or paper codes dictating how we are allowed to live or ought to live. Rightly considered, conservatism is more like a cluster of recognizable attitudes, assumptions, customs, and traditions. It's a practice or a way of life that serves not as a precise map, but rather as a compass pointing out a general direction. After all, How anyone gets through life always comes down to pursuing whatever they believe is worth doing, getting, fighting for, and conserving, which is the root word that is of interest here. Historically, the term conservatism describes an enduring temperament that I am convinced is essential to and will always produce a vital, settled, and deeply rooted community anywhere, anytime. Now, that's a very large claim, but I think that as long as human beings live under tolerable social and political conditions, free of outright oppression, war, or threat to life and limb, their lives will always tend to be of the conservative sort, by whatever name. And that's because conservatism, people living their own private lives quietly and striving to conserve what is naturally good, is the kind of life that has been experienced in all flourishing communities in history. And despite the present libertarian socialist tenor and direction of the Western democracies, we can still easily find this sort of conservatism in most rural regions, in small towns and villages, and also in certain pockets and neighborhoods, even in the most liberal of large cities. To this claim, another just as bold may be added, namely that never in human history has there ever been a permanently successful radical civilization. There have been lots of brief rebellions in history of a kind any of us might have joined, 
in an attempt to correct a local or a national grievance. And this gives us a clue. The key distinction is between rebellion and revolution. The former is a protest that aims to restore a cherished social or political practice or custom that has been denied, or to repair a useful institution that has been corrupted. But a revolution is very different. It's a protest that aims to destroy a political or moral institution, or even an entire social system, lock, stock, and barrel, and replace it with something wholly new, unseen, and never before tried. Of course, some revolutions seem well justified, such as the American one. But that event was misnamed, for it was not really a revolution at all. It was a war of independence or of secession, a rebellion calling not for new rights, but rather for a restoration of the inherited English rights and freedoms of which the American colonists believed they had been unjustly deprived. But the main point is that you may find some conservative rebels, but hardly ever a conservative revolutionary, because that is a contradiction in terms. That is because the true conservative, and I am speaking here of the follower of this philosophy of life and not of any political party membership, for many who today call themselves conservatives are not really conservatives at all in the sense that I will describe in this and in coming podcasts. I am speaking of the person who, for the most part, is in love with life as it is and cherishes countless of its charming details that make him or her or her feel so alive and so much a part of this world. A charming story should illustrate my point. And when I was a grad student at Stanford University, I used to run a lot with a wonderful mentor that we nicknamed the Prof. He was very astute, very wise, and very conservative at a time when we didn't even know what that word meant. He was an all-round gracious European gentleman of the old school who was completely out of step at Stanford. As a man who came to teach in a three-piece suit with a flower in his lapel that he had probably plucked along the way, he used to joke with all the fervent young radicals, all of them dressed alike in sweatshirts or t-shirts and grubby blue jeans, that in this surrounding, as the only man on campus in a three-piece suit, it was he who was the true radical, and they who were part of the conformist herd. This tended to confuse them mightily. Anyway, the prof and I had a deal. He wanted to become a good master's sprinter, and I wanted to try to get smart. So he was the boss in the classroom, and I was the boss at the track. One day, as usual, when we had finished training, we headed off to Rosati's pub in beautiful Portola Valley. Rosati's was a little grubby, the main decor being limited to unlimited initials carved into every wall and peanut shells all over the floor, which would crunch under your feet the moment you walked in. We were just into our first cold beer when, for some reason, I said to the prof, boy, too bad they don't clean this place up. Well, the prof stared at me in a way I will never forget, as if I were a different species that had just landed on his planet. And he said, why, why, William, 
I love it here just as it is. It's the candle smoke and the initials on the walls and the peanuts and the smell of charcoal burger meat that makes this place what it is. If you try to clean it up, as you say, you will turn it into something else. And I, for one, will never come back. Well, that was my first lesson in basic conservatism, which is to always preserve what we love. Now, back to the history of all this. Some object to the claim that conservatism is a universal and historically persistent human temperament because modern political conservatism appeared for the first time <clears throat> with two powerful 18th century thinkers, namely David Hume and Edmund Burke. Well, it is true that a reaction to Enlightenment rationalism under the political label conservatism came into common usage around that time. And that is why people like that, and like me, are sometimes called reactionaries. Nevertheless, I maintain that the underlying predisposition we call conservatism, or what I call true conservatism, has been around from time immemorial. Aristotle, to take the most important ancient example, was very much a political conservative. He called for the priority and conservation of what is self-evidently good in nature, in human nature, in family, in law, in custom, and in social and political life. His teacher Plato, on the other hand, was the first thoroughgoing dreamlander, because, unless, as some believe, he was only kidding, which I don't think he was, he wanted to recreate human society anew as something never before imagined along strictly totalitarian lines, although he himself was no egalitarian. He wanted to clean up Rosati's and turn it into something he simply imagined that he thought would please him better. His book, The Republic, was his paper plan for the perfect society he imagined, and a rich tyrant of the period named Dionysus actually asked him to implement it for the Greek city of Syracuse. <clears throat> so Plato got his first political job ever. And it was a complete flop, from which he narrowly escaped with his life. In short, this first historical attempt at utopian statism failed miserably, <clears throat> as have all subsequent attempts. So we could say that one of the very first and most impressive conservative intellectual rebellions in history was by Aristotle against the revolutionary proposals for human perfection of his teacher Plato. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Aristotle was followed by many other influential conservative thinkers in the ancient world, such as Cicero and Seneca, and that is a trend that has continued right up to modern times. On this note, by the way, it galls my leftist friends, and I do have quite a few, to learn that almost all of the great literary figures in Western history have aligned resolutely with what stood for conservatism in their time. To those already mentioned, a partial list would include Aeschylus and Aristophanes, Virgil and Horace, Dante and Chaucer, Shakespeare, Dryden, Racine and Corneille, Pope, Swift, Johnson, Goethe, and Balzac, Tennyson, Baudelaire, and Dostoevsky, and, and many more. I mean, that's just a start. Subsequent examples of a very conservative way of life that thrived for over a thousand years 
were the tightly knit Christian communities of the European Middle Ages, which, contrary to popular belief, were in many ways far more open and free societies than what followed. Women, for example, in those times had lots of voting, property, and inheritance rights within their own communities. And by the Middle Ages, slavery had almost vanished entirely from Europe, only to reappear and reach its distressing peak. When? Well, in the 18th century Enlightenment, or what came to be known as the Age of Reason. I should also mention the work of Thomas Aquinas, who died in 1274. His works must count as among the most rational conservative documents of all time, and they remain a touchstone for the modern resurgence of something called natural law, which I'll get to in a moment. A word of caution is due here, however, on the political uses made of natural law, for it is a sword that can cut both ways. It is defended by many conservative thinkers as a bulwark against all arbitrary and progressive governments, especially against totalitarian regimes, and has been useful to conserve conservative moral philosophers in their long struggle against moral relativism, especially as taught to young students in today's liberal educational establishments. Those interested in the topic of natural law will find two pretty fulsome chapters on it in a previous work of mine called The Book of Absolutes, which was published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2008. So I recommend you think about getting a hold of that book and concentrating deeply on the meaning of natural law as outlined there. On the other hand, there has been what appears to conservatives to be an arbitrary and disappointing use of the term natural law by many courts to achieve the progressive goals of the state. Some people call that pro progress from above. And it has also been used inauthentically, I think, by individuals fighting for their so-called natural rights against traditional moral codes. And many people call this progress from below. But this is a pincers movement, which is dissolving our traditional customs and traditions at a distressing pace. And this is fully discussed in part two of my book, The Great Divide, where I try to explain how this rights pressure from above um, and rights pressure from below are basically uh, atomizing civil society as we know it. I should add that there is understandable confusion between the primarily liberal concept of natural rights and the conservative concept of natural law. Leo Strauss explained the difference very well in his book Natural Rights and History in 1953, where he described natural law as an listen to this, an objective rule and measure, a binding order that is prior to and independent of the human will. What a great and brief description that is. But the modern misuse of this term, he says, mainly describes a series of rights which are really just subjective claims originating in the human will. Wow, what a clear difference that is talking about natural rights as an objective rule and measure that precedes or is prior to the human will and so-called <clears throat> natural law, rather, as an objective rule and measure, a binding order prior to and independent of the human will. 
right? Well, the, well, the term natural rights it has to do with subjective claims originating in the human will. It explains why we are today suffering such an unprecedented rights fever with new rights being created almost every day. But to get back to my little history of conservatism, this famously, famously found a voice in Europe once again in the restoration of the British monarchy in 1660 after Cromwell's usurping and bloody dictatorship, and very resolutely conservative, both in their intent and structure, were the original constitutions of America and Canada, dead set as they were against the unchecked will of any arbitrary, that's the key word, any arbitrary, unrepresentative government, whether under a monarchy or under the elective despotism that Jefferson saw all around him in the first democratic systems of the newly created 13 states in America. The liberty the founders in the New World wanted most was what David Hume called liberty under law. They saw more clearly than we do that with the ever-present potential of the 51% to legitimize mob rule, and listen to this statement, I think it's very true, democracy has no necessary connection with liberty. It may in many ways be connected with liberty, but it has no necessary connection with liberty. Today that seems like a shocking thing to say but only because we have been subjected to so much democracy hype equating democracy with freedom. In fact, however, democracy and liberty have always been independent variables, as shown by the fact that the English people had lots of liberty long before they had any democracy. And many oppressive tyrants in history, from Nero to Hitler to Egypt's Morsi, have sailed into office on a huge tide of democratic acclaim. And as I have said before, the overarching reality of our own time is that everywhere we look, we see more democracy, but also more statism. And as I explained in my last podcast, how this was only possible by splitting the body politic in two to arrive at what I call libertarian socialism. Due to this potential for democratic oppression, of which we all were aware, the constitutions of Canada and the USA were set up to incorporate some democracy on the reasoning that life is more peaceful if the laws under which citizens live have the consent of a majority of the people. But they opted for a very restrained type of mixed constitution that included an element of monarchy in the executive, but not too much. So worried were they about absolutism of any kind that one American founder branded the powerful new office of president as the fetus of monarchy. A great, a great expression. At any rate, there was to be a role for an aristocracy of merit, similar to the British House of Lords, in an appointed upper house or senate, which became elective in America in 1913, the role of which, as one observer of the time put it, would be to restrain, if possible, the fury of democracy. There would also be only representative democracy in a people's commons or congress. And finally, they wanted a clear separation of powers as between the executive, the legislature, and the courts, so that no one branch would become oppressive or arbitrary. The courts should not make the laws any more than a legislature should try a criminal. Although in 17th century England, Parliament did lots of that. 
In short, there were to be sufficient built-in checks and balances to block the hated arbitrariness of power, whether by power from above, which is to say from our leaders, or from below, which is to say from the people. My point in speaking of these things is only to say again that the original American and Canadian constitutions were very conservative, primarily because the people who made them were very conservative by temperament and from experience. I should add the observation that the history of the mutation of most Western democracies seems to be a gradual erosion of their original constitutional safeguards against both arbitrary government, arbitrary courts, and the centralizing tendencies found in all three branches of government. So this has been just a, <clears throat> a brief look at the historical background of conservatism as it has come down to us. In the next podcast, I'm going to describe the most salient features of conservatism as a way of life. As I say, you can find a written version of all this in The Great Divide, or you can listen to it here, or perhaps both. So please watch for it, and in the interest of flagrant self-promotion, please check out the many essays and blogs on my website. Follow me on Twitter at William Gardner, if you wish. And please consider buying my books, recommending them to your friends and enemies, especially, and thereby generally upping, upping the restoration of Western civilization. Thank you very much.